You're listening to Cultivation Elevated, hosted by Michael Williamson, where we discuss vertical farming and the future of cannabis and food production. You'll be learning key insights for vertical farming success from leading industry operators, growers, and executives. If you're a grower or owner looking to optimize your existing or new indoor cultivation facility, or anyone looking to cultivate more and less space, we've got you covered. Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Horticulture. Welcome to another episode of Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Horticulture. My name is Michael Williamson, and I am down at Indico in Sugar City, Colorado, with Josh and Owen. Thank you guys for taking the time to, you know, make time for us today. I really appreciate the tour. For people who are listening at home, can you guys kind of each take a moment to kind of give some background information on you and kind of your your role here at Indico? First, well, my name is Owen Miller. I'm a DJ. I'm also the director of cultivation and any hat that I have to wear in order to make it out. Nice. Uh, Josh Foley. I'm one of the owner operators as well. Like Owen, I do many things around the garden as well as our sales, um, outside sales, building relationships with the company with the market. So we started in co in 2017, um, we found this property out here in Sugar City, which is out in the middle of nowhere. But, uh, we were able to acquire land for cheap, and it was one of the few places that we could actually build from the ground up. Uh, that was important to us because we didn't want to basically inherit somebody else's problems by taking over an existing license and growth. Um, so the building was uh, designed using nothing but metal plastic, antimicrobial panels, our insulation value, all the studs are metal, no biomaterial that could potentially, you know, breed microbial growth or whatever. Um, and so that was, that was our starting place. And one of the most important things, whenever we first designed it, we were going to use double-ended high-pressure sodium lights. Uh, but that was right at the cusp of when we started hearing whispers about LEDs were, you know, doing new things. Uh, we had both tried LEDs. You know, long ago, little purpley UFO sure. lights and grew some fantastic art. With some cool, so, with some cooling fans on top too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. We went and did some uh, research. Fluence was the company that um, we focused on mainly because at that point in time, I was living in Texas. I was about an hour and a half away from Austin, which is where Fluence is based out. Sure. Um, so we started by going and touring their facility. Uh, where they they have the diet of printing it's quite impressive i remember the first time i toured i was like oh you do all of this in house like this i, I was I like expected to show up and like beat like a chop shop diet. yeah yeah um, no it's, there's like half a million dollar diet uh, and, yeah. and so from there we wanted to see what some of the product looked like so um, owen lived in pueblo at the time we came up, we went and looked at a facility off Ireton, Denver, that was using some of the fluence lights and like the bud looks good, uh, nice dense tubs, you know, the, the formation of the bud, the structure, everything looked nice. And so we basically had to pivot and make the decision to go with fluence or LED without really getting to do much R&D with it. And of course, the, the main attraction to using the LED at that point in time was because of hip racking and being able to maximize and be more efficient in the space. We're only 
a 10,000 square foot building with about 4,500 square feet of canopy with mm-hmm. two tiers. Um, and so, you know, the, the allure of being able to double your footprint in the same space was really what made us pivot without getting to do a lot of research and, and R and D on it, but it worked out amazingly. So, but as growers, you saw something that was, you were like, that's good enough over at that place you toured. You're like, if they can make it look like this and we can do it, if we can do better than this. Exactly. Exactly. The place wasn't, uh, wasn't super clean. Yeah. A lot of the, the materials and stuff that they were using, was kind of older. Sure. You know, older technology. And so, um, just being able to one, be at this like pivotal moment in the industry where LEDs are becoming more relevant. The pip racking is, is starting to make waves. And so it, we're both super OCD clean freaks. Yeah, it shows through your facility. It's nice. And so like just all white everything is yeah. our vision, yeah. right? Like yeah. White floors, white walls, white racks, all white everything. Um, and so it all just kind of came together. And uh, man, I mean, just right off the jump, sorry, harvesting some of our first, first harvests, it was, we, we, we were super impressed. Keep so up. like at that first harvest, even we were blown away by the results that we got. Um, and then as far as the racking goes, you know, and we, that was when, when and we still have them, but the, the tables were the, the multi-section sections, but sure. even that wasn't hard to pull out clean, yep. uh, put back in and start over. So that's kind of the progression of how we got to be here with the the leap yeah. the leap of the leap of faith you know? yeah yeah exactly and uh, you know couldn't be couldn't be more excited about it at this point really I mean I I, I definitely see it as being kind of the future of, of indoor cultivation anyways um, there's a lot to learn about it sure as far as keeping your rooms from forming microclimates and stuff like that but it's manageable if you have you know if you have a background and you understand how airflow and these types of things happen that. It's not that hard. It seems like a lot of people who give vertical farming a try for the first time who are like pretty reluctant anyways, maybe they get forced to do it by like an investor or something like that. And they almost like will find ways to make it fail. But the area that I see people get struggle the most is really, it's not like so much that it's like, it's not the rack's fault or the light's fault, but it's really poor engineering uh, associated with HVAC and air exchanges per hour. Um, And then also in rack and circulatory, how do you treat air? in the cube and around the cube. You know, if you're in tune with the plant and your space and you were willing to take the time to kind of dial in a few things, like it's nice when you have success on your first crop. A lot of people don't have that. You know, I'm sure if you didn't have the background that you had, that probably would be a little bit of a different story. Well, speaking of that, I would want to kind of start with where. where yeah, how, yeah, yeah. How'd you, guys, how'd, you guys, how'd you guys get connected? How'd you well, guys meet? I'd like to say that Indico began Back in 1996, when Josh and I met back in high school, you know, we just met just like any other guys in the meet through a mutual friend. And Josh came over to my mom's house one weekend while she was out of town. I had a few friends over and we rolled up some blunts and uh, we just got super stoned. And uh, I just like to think that that's when Indico started. We just didn't know it yet. Sure. And Josh and I used to, you know, roll around and drive around town and smoke blunts and listen to outcasts and just we just have a, just a great time and uh 
Uh, so we went to high school together. And then years later, we met back up and we both were growing cannabis indoors. And so we clicked and we uh, started talking about it and helping each other out, giving tips. He taught me a lot. I think I probably showed him a few things. We did some indoor grows together. And then uh, he had a uh, medical grow out in California. And uh, I used to go out there and help him out, train him and cultivate. And uh, he showed me a lot. And uh, that's kind of how we met, sort of how Indico got started. Nice. Yep. No doubt. We were in Texas on the unregulated market. Sure. Um, for a long time. And they, I was actually about to have my first child. And so I, you know, wanted to go legit. Yep. Uh, and so went out to South Lake Tahoe, started a medical grow, you know, got the, went to the doctor. I had all of my uh, patients, you know, I was their caregiver. Sure. I held their cards. And, um, so we did that for four years, I guess, almost five years, uh, the price at that time. And now it's just funny because it was like, it was so low back then, 3000 a pound. Yeah. It's like, man, I, 3,000 a pound, that's just nothing. You know, we're doing 6,000 a pound back in Texas. And back then, you could just show <laughs> your chronic, take it straight to the dispensary. They just count out your money at a money counter and you're good to go. Yep. Yeah. 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 Like, all you had to do is just go get a, a recommendation from the local physician and uh, get your plant count in order and your license. Yeah. California's kind of beautiful and awesome in that historic way. I mean, if you wanted to be a part of that plant, like, it was a pretty easy path to do things. It was. Um, it was. Yeah. Throw duffel bags in the trunk and then just hit the bomb. Bomb to the dispensaries. Yeah. Yeah. Have to study the dispensary, and then when weed mats came out, and you could just get on weed mats and just go to every spot. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, I made the mistake of being greedy, and I started shipping product back to Texas to get twice the price for whatever I got in trouble. It wasn't long after that that Owen actually ended up going ahead and moving out here to Colorado. So I was on probation for many years. It was like, which we were, we were saying earlier, it's like now it's like a benefit for yeah. social equity and all this stuff, you know, all these different injustices. Yeah. You know, if you're in a new licensed state, they're giving priority to people who've had previous charges and things like that. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, I got, you know, I got raided, door kicked in. Yeah, it's scary. Pregnant wife. On honor, I mean, it's, you know, not my proudest moment by any means, but it's all, all part of the journey, you know? And so, um, I went to go work at a car dealership, worked my way up. I was GM for dealership for seven years while I was on probation. At that point in time, I met an individual that is big ag in Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was right when they were passing the compassion use act in Texas. So, uh, he had heard through the grapevine about me and the things that I had done and, you know, was known for growing. Having a green thumb. Yeah. Um, and so I came to him and I'm thinking to myself, they're only going to be given three licenses in Texas. If anybody's going to get a license, surely one of the guys that's like the head of an agricultural deal in, in South yeah. Texas is as good a candidate as any. So I went to him. Uh, we started talking about it. So then we started the discovery process of trying to find out what it would look like to get a license. One of the things we did was we came up here to Denver to visit uh, Medicine Man. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. They did. They did tours and stuff. Yeah. The tours, design consulting, all that. He had never seen the cannabis plant growing before. So we did the tour, did all that. It, and yeah. so uh, 
while we were here, I told them, I said, my buddy Owen lives down in Pueblo. You want to see what really good sure it's looks good like. fire wave looks like drive down and i'll see if they'll let us come by and take a look because he had his medical car yeah and was, and was growing his medical plant so we went down and of course as you know like people when they really see that first plant that's just you know perfect form glistening it's, it's yeah. all inspiring um and people i mean it's just it gets them booked like that yeah. and so like right after that uh, we went west outside of Idaho Springs to Tommy Yonkers Brewery. We were sitting there yep. spitballing it. Uh, I was like, man, you know, it's obviously not going to be profitable in Texas because of the way the wall is written, the number of patients that would be available. Yeah, not, not for a while. Like, you're going to hemorrhage millions of dollars for years until they come up with some type of viable program. So I was like, well, let's start Colorado. You know, it's a mature market. The, the regs that are in place make sense. You know, they actually had a pretty dialed. Yeah, clear path to licensure. Um, so let's let's get our design down. Let's build a building. Let's get our SOPs in place. Let's, you know, because, you know, I had five trap houses going at once, but that was as, as big as. Sure. You know, that's not the same. That's like a logistics a nightmare, bunch, too. Yeah, like a bunch of small grows is not the same as having one big room. No. Um, I would even argue that one big grow is actually easier. Absolutely. That's what we did at Kind Love. Like we, when vertical integration came into play, we had a small 5,000 square foot and like another 7,500 and then vertical integration came. So we quickly got three other people and they were in the five to 15,000 square feet, but between Denver and Boulder and having to manage five different grower personalities and five electric bills and five security bills. Okay. I went to my partners like, man, we are doing it wrong. We need to put everybody under one big roof. And that's when we kind of went big in 2013 and consolidated under one roof and sure. just streamlined efficiencies. One of the things that I see on the tour that I was on today is like, you clearly have spent time or gotten uh, insights and knowledge from some form of like lean manufacturing or lean design flow, or like you can tell that there's a lot of good logic to like what I call the path of the plant. A lot of people will like be stepping over each other throughout these different stages. You guys do a lot of things and that's part of that kind of keep it simple, stupid philosophy. Well, and so funny enough, I mean, most of the, most of the houses that I grew in were like four bedroom houses. And so there was this flow of three bedrooms that were made into flowering rooms. And then one of the rooms was for, vet, for nursery veg. Yeah. Sweet stuff. And so like that little round robin. One to three ratio is nice from a design standpoint, I think. It, and it really works. And you know, most, most of the strain, even though LEDs do finish up lights a little bit faster than HPS, they do. They finish, you know, anywhere from a week to three or four days faster on average, sure. I think. But, um, nine weeks right most strains that are out there nine weeks is going to be even if they're around eight week finishers usually they can go nine weeks and finish up a little bit better or even if it's a little bit longer than a nine week plant at nine weeks it's acceptable it's, it's viable to pull down and use so that nine week rotation yeah is what seems to be like that in that that's i would say what i majority see out there in the field and stuff like it's very rare to see someone doing 10 weeks. It just, it's hard to make financial sense. It gets a, throws a wrench in the production schedule and now it becomes a special thing. Exactly. And unfortunately, a lot of the retail spaces, they still have everything labeled by Indica hybrid sativa. Sure. Um, and, you know, your classic sativa strains are going to be your longer, longer finishes. And so, I mean, are there any true sativas out there on the shelf? Probably not because of the amount of time that it takes, you know, I mean, 
it's like even, you know, so it's sativa us, leaning. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like sativa leaning hybrids. Like yeah. Poly hybrids. Hypoallergenic. And yeah, in reality, people were. Thinking. Yeah, and I think you see it more in terpenes too. Like a lot of the fruits kind of tend to lean in that direction, and some of that stuff for people. And we're now seeing that transition in language and kind of common nomenclature of like indica and sativa is not exactly the most accurate way to portray this information. But so I had a question for you. Since oh, okay. Yeah. All over. One of the trends that I've seen here is that like in the winter time the consumer is looking for more of like the gassy type strands seem to be more popular as, as a whole. And then as you get into spring and summer, fruits start to be more popular and the consumer's looking for more. Do you think that's a Colorado thing or are you seeing something like that? More than it's probably a Colorado thing just for the simple reason. And I'll use the Bay area cause we all kind of know it like the Bay area. When I got out there in 2015 and 16 with Harborside and I was learning about buying trends between the San Jose store and the Oakland store. It's like Oakland wanted a bunch of purple, like sleepy, like, you know, typical, what would people would describe as an indica dominant experience. And then San Francisco wanted like really anything like cookies, hypey, I guess runs cookies, you know, that kind of gelato kind of family. Oakland liked gelato too, because it was purple. And then you got into like San Jose and you have um, Silicon Valley and all that stuff where you have like more, tech focused consumers and they were like really into like racy sativas and fruit flavor stuff and so it was interesting to see like just within a i don't even know how many miles that is but it's not that far right you can drive it in an afternoon and loop the whole thing how the buying differences were so different in, in demand by micro region if you will yeah um and there's trends to things too like more mature states you'll see more mature you'll see more diversity of genetics but you also see older stuff that like you know, like that's been around for 10 years or nine years where you won't see that as much in a newer market. But yeah, it's so interesting, the buying trends. And I'm not the expert on that by any means, but just, but yeah, there's definitely seasonality to things too, where it's like, oh, that's just more appealing in the summer. Yeah. I want that watermelon, kiwi, rosin, you know, yeah. um, or something. Cause it's got that summer vibe and maybe there's, yeah, some more gas or whatever it is in the winter. And as people come, become more connoisseurs and yeah. And figure out what's there. Crusade that we're on right now, anyways, is the against THC. Uh, yeah, uh, to educate, you know, bud tenders on how uh, to educate people. On that note, can we talk about audio terps? Yeah. So there's a big correlation with your relationship and how you guys met through music and through cannabis. Which it's amazing how many people. It's like cannabis music. There might be like also I've learned like some of the best cannabis growers are also like really good dog breeders or they make like really good sourdough bread or something. And there's always these like interesting little artisan paths that come out as people's hobbies and things once they kind of commit to a, a culture. There's not too many better combos than those two things. And uh, you know, what's better than just getting super blaze on your favorite string and listening to your favorite music, I mean. Yeah, it's pretty perfect. It goes hand in hand. So uh, for us, it just, it's a kind of a no brainer. We met through music and cannabis and that's what we continue to do. I'm a DJ. And so we had an idea when we first started that we would do video DJ sets in the grow. We just thought it would be a cool idea. After our first harvest, we did that. We had a little DJ set in the grow. I went in there and I scratched for the plants and made a mix. And uh, we threw it up on Instagram and Facebook and uh, we just had a huge positive response on it. 
and we had over a hundred thousand views on that one little video snippet. And uh, ever since then, we've been getting guest DJs to roll through, play music for the plants. I play music for the plants often. Every single day, there's a boombox playing in one of the rooms. Yeah, yeah. It felt uh, the energy felt good when I came in here today. So we just like to think that when you play music for the plants, it instills the audio terms. Yeah. So, like you said, uh, the energy, the vibe, right? So. Obviously, there's scientific data that people have tried to collect on musical vibrations and the effects on plant growth. And it's, there's obviously something there. We believe it. it, it, it yeah, yeah, we totally believe in it. And then there's a, there's a deal called the Gondra Grid that somebody just made. I don't know if you've seen that. It's like a metal trellising system that hooks up to a... Uh, Some kind of frequency? Like frequency device, and it creates pulses, and it literally, like... Interesting. Vibrates, vibrates and it it's on speed. music. It'll play the music. It's vibration. It's so, wild. But the one thing that is blatantly apparent is that, you know, the plants are living things, um, and the, the mood and the environment around the plants affects the plant growth itself. And so by playing music... We're trying to create this positive energy and this positive vibe in the garden that then translates to the plants being happier growing. And then obviously, you know, happy plants is a better smoke. Uh, so that's where audio occurs. I love it. It like music plays such a big correlation into like productivity of labor and like how you feel. Yep. Um, I remember early days at Kind Love when we were trying to like dial in the dispensary experience and that's what you're giving. You're giving your plants an experience, you're giving your team an experience yeah. and, and you're carrying that story through all the way through your packaging and your end result to uh, the end consumer, which is cool. Um, and it's showing them really that. It's fun just to play music in a room full of plants. Yeah. Super yeah. Fun. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. We like, so there's been uh, some people like the, the movement is abandoned. I don't know if you're familiar with the movement, but like they were at Red Rocks and Gary Dredd, their drummer, came through. He also nice. CJs and does some stuff. So he did a set in the garden and like um, it, it's a morale booster, you know, for the plants and the people, like you said. Yeah, it's, that's awesome. We uh, we learned in the retail environment that we had like an older clientele in the morning. So we'd like keep it classic with some like old school Frank or like just something that they, you know, grew up on that they haven't heard and to keep it, you know, we played with lighting as well, like lighting and sound together from an experiential standpoint. But then at night, you know, like we had younger people getting out of restaurants and stuff. So, I mean, like we would just bump it in there. And at the time, like, so like back when like pretty lights was really, like really hitting the Colorado scene super hard and playing red rocks a lot. So, I mean, like we would, we'd get down in there and, uh, but everybody would walk in and they were like, the energy in this place is so good. And I think energy is people. But it's also like these other stimuli that you bring in. It's so interesting. I, I wasn't really a big believer in, uh, I guess, as big of a believer as I am today in energy at different levels. And I remember my business partner, the Gem Show was in town. We were about to open up the retail for the first time. He's like, I'm taking two grand. I'm going to the Gem Store or the Gem Show. And I'm like, uh, like, is that what we should be doing? You know, and like comes home with these big like amethyst caves. And uh, sure enough, like people would come in and like, they're just like, beeline it for the amethyst caves they like pull crystals out of their pockets and charge them up in there while they were buying some weed and i was like man there's like something to this you know there's something that i clearly don't completely understand right well it's like a laser cat it's yeah here they like wash with crystals um in the wash nice so, to do energy transfer you know like it's so, that bro i like that 
Sure. <laughs> yeah, they do put out a tasty product. So shout out to Laser. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Tell me more about. So I mean, we I kind of got the like twenty year growers took a leap of faith, saw some new technology, went and toured somewhere, and said, "Okay, if these guys can get it to this level, we can definitely. This is viable, and we can take it to the next level." So. From there, you guys got busy on build out and construction and, you know, you had a successful crop for your first crop, which not everybody does. But I guess, is there anything from if you're a new user or you're someone on the a listener of ours that's maybe like, hey, I've been a classic traditional grower for a long time. Like, I'm just on the fence here. Is there like any messaging that you would tell them from a pros or cons standpoint of like, you know, here were the pros, but here's things that we had to learn to change or pivot um, to make sure it was successful? The height first, as far as the racking and stuff? Yeah, or just multi-tier. Yeah, so the multi-tier, the, the height restriction was um, a little bit granted. Our building was supposed to have 15-foot ceilings whenever we built it. Mm-hmm. We did pour the footers high enough. Okay. Um, so we lost like a foot and a half of ceiling space. So instead of having 12-foot Racking, which I think is your standard. Yeah, I mean, they do all kinds of sizes, but a lot of people are in that 12, 14 so have, sometimes. Okay. So we have oh, that's. So we have 54 inches of space from tray to light. Um, and so, you know, luckily it just kind of fell into place. We came up with the name Indico. Um, and at the point in time, I don't think we realized that we were going to be specializing primarily in like non, non stretchy, <laughs> bushy. Yeah. So. Man, I'm glad that worked. <laughs> but so that, that was the one thing is just uh, the the plant maintenance, um, being able to anticipate, you know, and learning your strains and knowing that this strain during, you know, from week two and a half, three to five is really going to stretch a lot. And so we know that you have to get ahead of it and do some super cropping and maybe bending over using the trellis to do so and hold it down in some instances. So that was like probably one of the bigger learning curves with the racks. Yeah, to make sure like plants aren't growing like through the lights or something. Yeah, yes. And then, uh, you know, really thinking through the airflow scenario in the room um, as far as, you know, not just on the top tier having fans, but on that bottom tier, having plenty of airflow across the canopy. And then uh, what we did was we used some yeah, just because the racks don't move from wall to wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can't really put oscillating vans or fans mounted on the wall pointing towards the garden because... Yeah, not your typical like 18-inch oscillating fan, right? So we used 10-inch max fans positioned in the corners where the, the tables don't roll. And then we basically created this like exterior vortex around yeah. where on each wall you have fans that are pointed down the wall and then the wall back going and it just kind of... I call it the NASCAR track, you know, yeah. it's like it's the infinity loop, right? And just trying to circulate and corners of rooms are always really interesting because it's like seemingly where that microclimate loves to have its first like, I'm going to pop up something nasty for you to deal with, you know? Exactly. And then I think the number one learning curve going to a commercial scale and then just you know we've got so many plants packed into a small space it's, it's making sure that you don't underestimate the amount of dehumidification that you need yeah um, however much water 
you are putting into a room on a daily basis, you need the ability to at least take that out with dehumidification, uh, maybe even more so just because of, it's one thing to take it out over a 24 hour period, but I mean, you need to be able to change your humidity levels in a matter of minutes. Yeah, especially when lights go off, right? So you need to, to really focus on having the proper dehumidification amounts because if not in a, in a multi-tier system, those microclimates form really, really fast. And then also um, during certain stages of growth, you also want to make sure that you have humidification depending on where you're located. Since we're in the high desert of Southern Colorado, you know, during certain times we have to add humidification. For sure. It can be a bit of a challenge. Also, it's probably the number one thing that we've noticed that growers overlook when we go and tour facilities is a lot of times their rooms are just way too dry to start out. The plants are not flourishing. Yeah, it's that transition time, right? When you go from like veg to flower and you have a bigger space and there's not a lot of biomass developed yet. And there's yeah. that. Yeah. And it's like, that's how you're starting, you know? And I, I call it like the, the path of vigor, but like staying in that vigor curve of growth is key. Cause as soon as you do that, it's like, yeah. you have that setback, you know, like oh, I just lost a week. So in our bedrooms, you know, we st starting out at 60 to 65% humidity, no matter what day one, all the way through, because if you don't start off with that high humidity, your plants are going to suck right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. And you also want to you know, precondition your room. So like you're moving your plants from veg in your flowering room, you want to make sure that you have your humidity levels um, and your vapor pressure deficit in the right realm before you move them in and don't move them in and be reactive to trying to get them there because that'll also stunt, stunt that plant growth right off the jump, which you don't want to do. We talked about it earlier a little bit, but it's interesting how many people, particularly around transitional times from like one plant stage to another, they'll just compound stress on the plant. You know, they're like, heavy skirt, slam more light on it. I'm going to change the nutrients. I'm going to physically handle it and move it. I'm going to, my environment's going to be different. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, whoa, like easy, you know, like, I mean, those, not that, not that all, all of those things don't have their place, but like staggering some of that stuff, you know, a lot of people, you know, are like complain about defoliation. I notice in startups and they're like, it's just so much work. And one of the things that we've been telling people is like, Hey, like, would you maybe just, what if you just defoliated like a little bit every week, you know, cause people are going to get on to like 10 to 14 days or day 21, day 45, and then a little bit more towards harvest and everybody does it differently. But for for these larger grows who can't get in there and defoliate in like that shorter time frame, we find that if you take, if you figure out a, a thing like three minutes per tray and you're just going after strategic families that are obviously blocking light from above and kind of work your way down that we can break up a lot of that, like the burden of a heavy default. And also timing too, if you hit it at the right time, you know, uh, it could take a lot of time and effort out of your defoliation and lollipop. Yeah. And yeah, there's certain products too that we notice that uh, when you use at the right time, it actually um, cuts back on the amount of bioass that's produced uh, after you defoliate at the right time. like. The mammoth where we were doing a lot of our R and D was the mammoth. Mm -hmm. After our day twenty one default, from before and after using that product, the amount of leaf that grew back was was 
considerably less. And then even when we got to the very end of the rounds, we actually, we would weigh, when we wet weighed the plants, the, the plants actually weighed a little bit less. But there was more flour, more product. That's what you want. And our amount of trim that we had went down considerably. Um, and so like that, you know, you got to take that into consideration. You guys have a lot of good genetics. Can we touch base on some of like what's kind of in the collection and how some of maybe the inspiration behind maybe some of the breeders or some of the cuts or whatever it might be that, you know, really shine bright for your op and, and wash well. We can talk about is the Mandarin Sunset, which is one of the first strains we started out with in the facility, which we purchased from Colorado. Because that's the only person that we could get clones from when we started out. Uh -huh. Colorado, they had the clones in metric and everything. Yep. So one of the strains we got from them was the Mandarin Sunset, and uh, that did really, really well for us starting out. Okay. Yeah, it's an ethos. It's an ethos. Yeah. Genetics. Yeah, Colin over at Ethos. Love that one. Uh, we won uh, first place Best Indica in the 2018 Cannabis Cup. Uh, yeah. Two, yeah, 2018. And you opened your doors in 2017? We got our first plant in the building in December of 2018. Um, and then the first cup that we entered was uh, 2019. And so, yeah, first place. That was the only entry that we... Nice. That year. That was a, that was a one, huh? Yeah. Um, and that was a lot of fun because that was before COVID. So there was actually an event. Sure. Like 3,000 people, you know, and it, that was a lot of fun. And then we entered it again in 2020 and uh, won first place with it again. And then uh, the, the sour strawberry that we had, uh, won first place hybrid um, that year as well. So, but as far as genetics go, like I said, we are you limited in space. Sure. But you keep a good amount of genetics. You mentioned what, about 25? Yeah. And well, in pr like some form of rotation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes we end up having a mom that just sits in the corner and, you know, once it gets too big, if it's not fleshy, it hardens off, you know, have to cycle it back out, but we'll, we'll pull it out from, from what I've seen, it seems like the consumer, you've only got about, I mean, depending on how often you're putting it out, if you're putting it out every round, you've got like six to eight months before strain is no longer appealing sure. to, to the consumers, right? The, the, the shelf life for, for strings and is, is super short, but, uh, some of the other breeders, exotic genetics, of course, uh, loving in her eyes, which is uh, a local Colorado breeder mm -hmm. that she does some amazing stuff. And I, I think she does do quite a bit of work with those as well. Okay. Um, and she's been, you know, she's, She's fantastic. She's been growing for 20 something years as well. And like that sort of crossing the genetics and sort of passion. Um, and so like, she's just got basically nothing but new genetics that she's constantly running across. Nice. So she's a wealth of the archive. Yeah. Fletcher and that whole crew. They do, they do. They've done great work forever. I mean, basically everything that we've popped from archive has been it's been fire. The the lost cause, which is the amnesia haze and the dose dough, um, is one that we popped, you know, towards the beginning of our of our go, and uh, it's still around just because it dumps for hash. Uh, the medicinal properties are on the chart. Sure. We pulled it back, and then there's basically an outcry from people that were like, 
where did this go? I need this. Uh, yeah. We more or less, even if it's only a couple tables, more or less keep it running all the time. Um, and then you smell that it's got like a kind of a sugar cookie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, type of real subtle. Yeah, it was like a fresh bakery to me. Yeah, but that could uh, get that. That particular sweet profile actually matches like with a lot of different flavors. So the fact that it, you know, dumps six percent on washing, uh, we can we can do that. And then some of our other strains like military chocolate that have a really good terpene profile but doesn't wash so well, uh, we can pair them together and then all of a sudden that six percent or with that two and a half percent uh, makes sense. And for anyone that's new to the podcast or new to some of this language, when we talk about washing, we're generally talking about solventless hash production, which you guys do here as well. And washing is generally in terms of the yield of the of extraction itself and generally just very primitive approach to it cannabis. Is. But it is, in my opinion, the best qualitative product and experience of the plant because you catch terpenes, you catch head high, you catch body high. I mean, it's really like a full experience versus a lot of the traditional hydrocarbon stuff from a personal standpoint exactly it's something that's been around so long. millennia we've been we've been washing our trim in bubble bags you know sure for 18 years or better and uh it's just it's one of those things that i've noticed is that uh, typically with like hydrocarbon extractions headaches sure <laughs> when i eat gummies that are from hydrocarbon i tend to get Headaches a lot of time, and I don't know if it's because maybe it's not strain specific, and it's like a melting pot of material or the the hydrocarbon itself. But uh, solventless is and you you just the, the most basic and yeah cleanest. pure yeah yeah. So yeah, you guys were one of the kind of first groups that I saw that did some collaborations uh, in the solventless gummy production um, with a company called Dialed In. Can you guys tell me a little bit more about kind of that relationship and that product and how it's yeah. different than maybe a traditional gummy that someone has experienced? So uh, Jason is the owner of Dialed In. He was a solventless hash producer for, for a while. Um, and he broke off and decided that you know he had the idea of doing strain specific full spectrum rosin gummies and it's you know it's simple it's not super complicated but absolutely brilliant i think that uh colorado being a little bit more of an educated market yeah uh, was something that they were primed for looking for that um, you know one of the main differences i believe with their gummies as opposed to traditional gummies is that yeah this is the gelatin um, so like when you purchase gummies, it tastes just like Harboro gummy bears. You know, I mean, it's, it's not, I think that a lot of gummies hit the market that are sugar coated and like, like pe pectin based or something. Juice, yeah. Oh, with sugar on them. And so like the fact that these gummies were delicious and they were strings specific. Well, you can taste terpenes, right? Like yeah. cannabis and edibles has always been kind of like the cannabis taste has been like a frowned upon thing because you know, it's decarbed and it just has lost yeah, a lot of so that. They work on, you know, they're very big on getting the terpene profile from whatever cannabis is going to go into the gummy. And then they try to pair their flavors of their gummies to with the fruit juice and stuff profiles yeah. that are going in. And so, you know, and, and they, they truly carry them well before they would uh, buy any product to go on their stuff. He goes out and he tours the groves and, you know, he 
to see the process of how we did. And, uh, so he takes a lot of pride in you know, what, he, what he does. And like even just recently when they bought some of the rosin that we made to, to use instead of, because I guess when they started, they would buy trim. Uh, and then they would do it all in house, mm-hmm. press, do the press, wash, press, you know, do all that. And so they're still doing that, but now they, the demand is so big that they're actually buying just old rods in front. But one of the things was that um, he was very specific about that the rods and had to be full spec. Like it can't just be, you know, forty-five and one sixty U food grade. Sure, like it, it's not, it's not separated, and so. And then the other part that he really liked when we first started is our curing process, even our trim, uh, because of the way that we dried our plants uh, is basically cured. Um, and so that helps to retain some of those yeah. profiles. Can you highlight some of the stuff that you guys do in drying and kind of some of the specs that you like to I guess prefer? Start with uh, the flush, you know? Yeah. So it all starts with the good flush, you know, two weeks of plain water the first few days we use uh cleanse cleanse which sort of psychs down the salts to break it all down as before you flush and then you flush for a full two weeks and then it sits in our dry room which is humidity and temperature controlled at 60 percent humidity and 60 degrees for about a week and a half to two weeks nice it stays that temperature and that humidity at 24-7 in that room, which makes it really nice for our curing process. And then it's hand-trimmed and glass cured. And you're at, you hang whole plant too? Yeah, yeah, we hang the whole plant, which obviously the significance to that would be, or maybe not obviously, but the significance to that is, is that whenever your product is starting to dry, the buds start to dry the water, you know, the plant's reaction, even when it's been cut down, is to try to preserve itself. So it starts to draw all of the moisture from the buds back into the stems. So by holding the, by hanging up the whole plant and not just having your buds on a short stem, you're basically giving the plant the ability to pull all of the moisture, all the buds back into the main stock. And that's where, you know, that water is where a lot of the starches and sugars that are in the flower is still, what, what didn't get flushed out is still in there. So as it dries, those starches and sugars get pulled back into the, the stock of the plant and pulled out of the bud, which, you know, with, that's the stuff that gives you like a first taste. Um, so then we take it down, we hand trim it. It goes in a glass jar. Yeah, you got some massive glass jars. Yeah, so those were actually fermenting jars that we found uh, for fermenting beer, yep. cider, or whatever, but there's seven gallons. So we can put about three pounds in a jar and still have enough air space uh, to be able to cure in there. And so they'll stay in the glass jar for at least three weeks, if not longer, uh, before it'll be able to go out to the shelf. But the point of the glass jar is, is whenever it's sealed, you know, terpenes are highly volatile as far as their, their, was it the, the boiling point or whatever. So like whenever they hit their very air yeah, outside, they basically evaporate. Um, so by sealing them in glass jars, as it's evaporating from the product, it's basically just hanging out, being reabsorbed by the plant. So terp marination. Yep, that's yeah. it. And we, so feel, yeah, we feel that it preserves the terps better than plastic does. Yeah, absolutely. Curious, I have plastic buckets. Even metal to that point, you know, because even like stainless steel is, has, is more rough on the surface. It has 
porous, I guess, than glass would be. Obviously, plastic is, it'll leach, leach the smell from the plant. So it was crazy because that's the way we always cured it was ball glass jars and put everything in there. You put it in a dark place for a while, pull it back out and it's ready, you know? And uh, so when we came to Colorado, you know, that was the first thing. It's like, oh, shit, man, we're going to have 4,000 ball hours. You know? And so we found those. Um, and it was crazy because as we were bringing purchasing managers from dispensaries through uh, to do their tours, you know, to see the product before they would buy, they were all just blown away by the fact that we were carrying these glass Sure. Cars. Yeah, it's, 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 like, not, it's not common. It's, I didn't know that we started, you know, and we started with pickle jars and it's just a natural <laughs> progression. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, I guess, where can someone who's listening find your products? Like, do you have some flagship stores or are you kind of all over the state at this point? It seems like you guys are really a true craft grower who's designed to be hand-batched, hand-packed, hand-loved, and isn't sitting on a shelf for very long. So it seems like you guys are really designed to be, you know, making drops and selling out. Yeah, yeah. And, and we, like, our, when we, our prepackaged dates, um, you know, they're Cody and myself. Uh, we we hand-pick the buds that go into the to the glass jars that go out. You know, so wow. when you buy the prepackaged, yeah, it's a little more expensive, but um, it's, it comes in a glass jar. So that transition from curing in glass, we don't waste it by curing in glass for a month, but then turning around and sticking it in mylar bags and putting it on the shelf. Uh, that's a good point. Glass, um, and it's going to be the, the cream of the crop whenever you get that. And, and part of the reason for free bags, oh, well, they're super popular, but like uh, the market Colorado back last year, um, I guess it was around October is when things really hit and uh, just the, the bottom fell out completely. Um, and at that point in time, we were basically just doing bulk wholesale pounds, um, just like we did back in the day where we had vacuum seal bags that we put a sure. sent it to the dispensary, but it became apparent that uh, we needed to have some other products to be able to move more product to be able to retain a price point. So introducing more SKUs, like doing pre-roll joints, pre-packaged aids, mm -hmm. uh, along with starting to get into were you doing raw? Is that how rosin really came back in the mix? Oh, that sounds nice. Rosin cards. Wow. Um, and just, you know, for, I would say there's, I know there's a lot of cultivators all across the station right now that are starting to deal with the same type of thing where there's too many cultivations that are starting. Yeah. Supply and demand is a real issue in and mature some states. I hate on the pre-packed flour and then some people like it. Some people prefer deli style and they prefer to go into a dispensary and see it in jars and and we like both we think both yeah. has it like yeah and that's where that's where branding is a big part as well you know like with the free packs if you're comfortable with the brand and you know the process and you like the product well then you're okay with buying a pre-pack but if you walk in and see a brand and you don't know you know from anyone else it's hard to buy product without being able to you know see what it looks like so that's what I was getting to as far as in these other markets. Uh, in particular, like I was talking to a buddy in Michigan, and that's happening there. The price point yeah. it has just completely fallen. It, and here in Colorado, it fell, but you know, some of the craft grows have been able to hang on because we have an educated basis of buyers. Uh, in Michigan, I would say that there's probably not as many educated buyers as in Colorado, just because it's a new market, maybe. 
Maybe I'm wrong. They're like an, in my mind, they're like an immature Colorado. It's really, they've got some, there's some heads up there growing some good herb, but uh, you know, they're, they're a little bit behind on development, but they're catching up quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the, uh, his complaint was that right now all it is is about price and THC percentage. And so they grow amazing product, uh, but they're in this battle about THC percentages. 30 plus percent. Yeah. Can we tell the listeners real quick that we don't believe in high THC percentages and getting you higher. It's all about the entourage effect, THC and cannabinoids. Period. Point blank. (laughs) THC percentages don't mean jack. It's interesting, right? Like, but it is a dr- such a consistent driver from like a KPI standpoint of what people are looking for and what they're willing to pay for. And I've been in markets where like, if it's not 25% or more, like don't even try and sell it to us. And you're like, but again, if it has this like really unique terpene profile and does all this other stuff, like sure you don't want to take a look at that, you know? Some of, the, some of my favorite flower that gets me the absolute most stunned is 19, 20%. Well, you guys have an old old school cut of Romulan here that was really cool to see. And I mean, I just, I haven't seen that in years, but I'm like, there's something special about that particular cultivar. I'm sure it is, what, 18 to 22 or something, right? Um, but there's other stuff, right? We have all these tertiary and minor cannabinoids and terpenes in play. And so I, I, I hear you. It's, it is interesting how the market, though, is like really tied to that THC percentage. Yeah, I expect even extractors, too, they're looking for higher THC percentages. So when they extract, it comes up higher. Yeah, they get their higher yields and returns. You know, it's trying to find a balance on all that stuff. I, I call it the utopian cultivar, but like there, I haven't really found one yet. You know, you look at something like, I don't know, GMO that has a lot of total THC and a lot of uh, total terpene profile, but it's also like a really long maturation time. Yeah. But a lot of people have been breeding with it and trying to like make those novel improvements. And I think it's what makes all these strains and cultivars like so it's fascinating. Yep. Well, and I mean, it basically comes down to you're one of two different types of cultivators. You're either cultivating for high end flower or you're cultivating for extraction. Yeah. Or biomass. The biomass. Yeah. <laughs> the old biomass. Because if you're, if you're trying to produce, you know, the, the, the terpiest, Phenos that we've had are the lowest testers. Um, and I think that plays into the fact that in our pursuit of, of trying to breed high THC percentages, we've bred out a lot of the terpene profiles from some of the old school strains. That's what happened to CBD back in the day. Like it, we didn't have lab testing. Like we almost bred CBD out of cannabis completely. And then all of a sudden we got some lab testing and then there were some kids with seizures and all of a sudden it was like, wait a minute. And then you saw CBD come back, but like we essentially did that. But, you know, and I remember when we used to test product at Kind Love and it was back in the day. So we had to smoke it. There's no lab. There's no labs to go to. To test some of the bud that Josh and I met smoking back in the day. Sure. Every once in a while, you know, in October or November, you get that good Christmas bud. Sure. Christmas bud. Hardly any seeds in it. It was swag, but it was really good bud. And like, some of that, some of that garnish was some of the best bud that I've ever smoked in my life. Had some kind of high pinene terpene or yeah, something. Just, it was just like a big, super high. That's fighting a Christmas tree. So great. And say that back then, I mean, it was so different from the schwab and would see that you would be skeptical about it. Like, is this real? Because it smelled so piney. Yeah. 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 Well, and like, so there's a correlation between some terpenes and TACLA stuff that has higher. I need percentages. I will typically or lower THC. 
Um, and so like, if you go out there and you go to all these shops, you're not going to find a lot of product that has piney. Yeah. It's very not a, it's not a, unfortunately, um, that's kind of one of the things that's really cool about that Romulan is that it's kind of really high piney. Yeah. Yeah, you see a lot of like Mersine like and beta carophylline. But I swear, man, whenever I hit something that tastes earthy, I just know that I'm going to get super baked. <laughs> and, uh, like a nice peat bog in the mouth. I don't go off THC percentages. I go off terps. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Nice. Oh, your nose. Um, as we wrap up here a bit, um, what does the future look like for you guys? You guys have some uh, some goals for, for Colorado uh, market or, or beyond? Yeah, absolutely. We've been doing some uh, some work with other companies across the country, helping them with design and operating procedures. And uh, you know, we're in that era where there's a lot of public publicly traded companies that are making big moves. And so, like, I feel I feel like some of the some of the smaller cultivations, craft cultivations, are going to have to figure out ways to to work together. Well, the big guys of, you know, these big multi-state operators or MSOs, as they're called, they, they're struggling to put out the quality product um, consistently. It's not a secret by any means. And I think you might just see a nice wave of, hey, if we can't put out as good a product as these craft guys, like, let's, let's buy them or partner or and just let them continue to do what they do. But let's put that brand underneath our our house of brands. Um, yeah, the house and, and that's what we, we plan on want to move into other states where you know right now we're just cultivation and extraction um we've been working on potentially a retail space to be vertically integrated here in colorado um so as soon as that happens because i mean as a cultivator the only way that you can hedge hedge your bets is by owning a retail guaranteed space. shelf space uh, that you control they for sure at least have a percentage of your crop that that yep. You are yeah. selling and, and have the outlet for and then you can work on wholesale for the rest. But uh, that'll be the next step that then cool. there will definitely be looking at trying to take Indico into some other states. And you mentioned you're doing some more events and things like that, you know, and trying to get like more of the brand near, you know, music and more yeah. cannabis culture events. Yeah, that's 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 been killer lately. I mean, it's done wonders, you know, and I think one thing that, that we we started doing with uh, with other companies that's kind of made a splash and that I hope people follow suit is that for a long time, cultivations, uh, whenever there's events, you have like a cultivation and an extractor and an ancillary company and like, you know, different pieces. That come. Yeah. And so we've been doing events where we've been doing it with other cultivators, whereas past most of the time cultivators keep their cards pretty close to their chest that they don't, you know, as far as playing nice with other cultivations, it seems like there's always been this barrier. Um, and so we've been doing it where we other other cultivations that we respect and know that they put out quality product and we've been doing stuff together, cool. and working together to create a, a presence of, you know, quality, if you will. And, uh, it, you know, people fucking love that. It's like, it's a, it's like co cooperation or, you know, it's like cooperating competition where it's like, you're just trying to level up each other in a positive, constructive way. It's interesting that you make that comment because I see with like more traditionally or conventionally grown cannabis specifically that there's this like competitive edge thing where it's like, I'm not telling you shit or like whatever, right? Yeah. It still has that old, it still has old school secretive stuff. The living organic soil community in the cannabis space 
is like the complete opposite. They're just like, we need more living organic soil grown. Like you're growing that. That's great. Like, how can we help you? Maybe we can split. We're getting our soil here. If we're eating the same mix, like maybe we can bulk buy and, and benefit each other. And like, oh, we have a really good microscope. It's really fascinating. But like with the, uh, yeah, with the conventional cultivated cannabis, like there's still that old school, like, I'm not telling you, you know, um, but it's a real thing. So it's cool to see that that's, you know, maybe you can tell people all day on how to do something. Are they going to do it right? Those work. Totally. Yeah. You know, this concept of secret sauce is kind of funny. Yeah, There's why we're not afraid to tell people like, you know, we'll give you some advice. And hopefully yeah. 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 Well, well, it's, it's hard to apply, right? It's like, it's, and it's easy to say, we can sit here and talk about how great or whatever, but like when you're in the trenches as an owner operator and like, things are not going according to plan or there's some outlying factors and you've got big, I mean, it's real work and it's real hard. And to bring it all together to tie into music, like harmoniously is such a challenge. That's, it's like a symphony, you know, it's like getting everything in its place. And inevitably there's always someone out of tune or something where you're like, Ooh, so close. Right. I guess. So our, our DJ sets in the garden is called Sensi Sessions. So you can follow us on Instagram at Sensi Sessions on Instagram. You can follow Indico at Indico on Instagram. You can catch our sets on both. And Josh and I, when we do pop-ups, we're doing Sensi Sessions on the road too. So cool. Her, Go to your favorite dispensary and you see us DJing in there. That's what we're doing. Awesome. And then the one last thing that we need to touch on when we were talking about uh, advice for people that are getting going is the classic, keep it simple, stupid. Sure. Keep it simple, stupid, and don't dry your product in a room that's 15% humidity. <laughs> you, know, you don't want that Colorado crunch where you break up your butt and just turn dust. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. What an awesome time. What a great brand. i um, excited to check it out a little bit more and uh, continue on your journey. Yeah, of course, man. I appreciate it. Loving Pip. Yeah. Appreciate that. And shout out to Pip. <laughs>